Good afternoon, everyone. It's Kenny from the VEDA sales team. Today is Thursday, September 24th, and welcome to the VEDA Predictions Podcast. On these podcasts, we aim to break down headlines and issues emanating from Washington and provide predictions for what's coming next. I'll be the host for today's discussion, and joining me is Henrietta Trays, Director of VEDA's Economic Policy Research, and our lead tech analyst, Alex Cinnamon. Welcome, guys, and thanks for taking the time to be here. Given your backgrounds and areas of expertise, you guys are the perfect pair to discuss today's topic, which is U.S.-China relations. As both you know all too well, we basically haven't gone a single day over the past three years without getting some sort of news item on China, whether it's tariffs, sanctions, legislation, or the back and forth over Twitter, it's impossible to ignore. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there are no signs of this going away. So with that said, let's get underway. First, I wanted to give Henrietta some quick kudos because even before uh, tax reform was done, you were very vocal and adamant that investors need to shift gears to focus on trade and specifically our relationship with China. So maybe a good place to start is, why did you think that was gonna be the case? And then maybe you can discuss our current relationship with China and how we got where we are. Thanks so much, Kenny. Um, yeah, that is the most important question. And I was actually just speaking with a client about that earlier this morning. The analysis that we did in the wake of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passing had just as much to do with the makeup of the United States Senate, the House of Representatives and the administration as it did with actual U.S.-China policy. Um, one of the things that we saw and we are going to see next year is that the Democrats in 2018 won the midterm elections in a blue wave. They took over 43 House seats um, and I want to say six governor's mansions. So the dynamic and shift in power in D.C. in terms of going from an all Republican House, Senate and White House and then shifting to a Democratic House, a Republican Senate and President Trump in the White House was the leading indicator of the fact that we were about to focus exclusively on trade policy and ultimately get tariffs. That was, of course, because President Trump specifically and his USTR uh, Ambassador Lighthizer has a very strong view on US-China relations and how China has treated the United States over the last two decades. Um, specifically since they were able to enter into the WTO. And um, we've seen our manufacturing shift from the United States over to China. That was a backbone of Trump's 2016 election. It continues to be a major focal point of the administration. And it allowed for me to say, all right, well, look, if the president's not going to get any more tax cuts through the House, he's not going to pass an immigration reform bill or repeal the ACA, what can he do without Congress? There are two things. He can work on regulatory reforms, which are you know, fine, but not all that flashy, really small scale stuff that's pretty much at the margins at Treasury or the FDA or the FCC or any of the administrative agencies that he controls. But the most ambitious and wide ranging seat of power for the president that he needs no buy in from Congress on is tariffs. He imposed immediately after the tax cut um, passed. He started in with Section 232 tariffs. Those were tariffs on steel and aluminum. Um, he levied those on Canada, on Mexico, on Europe, on Japan, on China. 
um, the whole world, essentially, with a few exceptions, um, designed to say, hey, we have a steel problem in the United States. We need our domestic manufacturing to get back up. He was very close with the CEO of Nucor, um, obviously had a strong eye towards U.S. Steel, um, AK Steel, and he said, all right, we're going to put these Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. That was via the Commerce Department. Almost immediately thereafter, he moved to Section 301 tariffs. Those are the real U.S.-China tariffs. Right now, we have those tariffs on um, something in the range of $300 billion worth of goods coming in from China. And that has slowly escalated ever since 2018, um, slowly been ramping up. List one, list two, three, four A went on uh, last summer, which was a very volatile time in the trade universe. And all those tariffs stand in place today. Um, so they reached a phase one deal in February of 2020 this year, even though that seems like at least 50 years ago now. Uh, they did put that phase one trade deal into effect. They lowered some of the tariff rates. Now the lowest tariff rate is 7.5%, but all the tariffs that were in place before remain in effect and will be in effect for the foreseeable future. Thanks. So we're basically a little bit past six months into phase one. Do you think China will be, ever be able to live up to the phase one deal and the parameters that have been set? That's a great question. It's going to depend a lot on what your interpretation is of the phase one deal. So phase one was primarily focused on making agriculture purchases. The agreement specifically states that in 2020, China's going to agree to purchase $76.7 billion more in U.S. agriculture and energy goods uh, over their 2017 rate. In 2021, China has committed to purchasing $123.3 billion over their 2017 rate in order to be in compliance with phase one. Obviously, when they signed this trade deal, they did not factor in coronavirus, the global pandemic, and the massive decrease in global trade that would ensue. So China right now, whether for reasons of COVID or um, other issues that have popped up or their inability to ever meet those thresholds in the first place, which is really a question that gets pretty partisan pretty quickly, you are looking at China being about 50% at least behind. Uh, the Peterson Institute has this awesome tracker that uh, is watching everything from soy to pork to wheat, corn, rice, etc. that's trading between the U.S. and China. And they find that the phase one trade deal agreement terms are about 50% behind what China committed to. So uh, for right now, I think the most important question is, is the president going to pull out of phase one before the election or after the election? Or will Biden, if he wins, um, adhere to the phase one agreement? Um, and those are all really important topics for anybody watching, uh, obviously, any of those commodities. But certainly the tech space, you're seeing the export control restrictions ramp up, which is something my colleague Alex Cinnamon can certainly speak to. Um, and those are going to be the paramount issues going into 2021. Thanks. Maybe that is a good segue to uh, to bring into out Al bring Alex in here. So, Alex, we've seen the headlines on TikTok, and obviously, tech is now being dragged in uh, in the discussions. Um, can you discuss a little bit uh, about that? And why why TikTok is being dragged in, and uh, are there any potential um, companies that could be next? Yeah, Kenny, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, what Henrietta said about this U.S.-China rivalry—it's extending to these digital platforms. Um, I mean, the U.S. has always played a leading role in the tech landscape, but that central position is, is slipping for several reasons. And what we've seen is some other platforms um, that have not originated in the U.S., um, like TikTok, 
um, which is owned by a parent company based in China called ByteDance, uh, emerging and with 100 million users that are based in the US. Uh, extraordinarily popular in a very short amount of time. Um, so, so how does the US and particularly um, the, the administration reconcile with these different companies um, that come from, that are emerging from different, different backgrounds and different governments. And with TikTok in particular, this popular short video social media platform, that the two concerns are the data the company collects, which is stored in China and accessible to the, to the Chinese government, uh, potentially, and also the potential influence that such a popular social media platform can have. We've seen the kind of influence U.S. companies like Facebook can have on perceptions and discourse. Um, so what could happen in the future with TikTok? So it's this potential threat uh, that TikTok presents um, that's caught the attention of, of, of folks that are interested in national, national security. But what's, what's interesting about this saga that is, uh, you know, the, what's with our TikTok is that the national security concerns have kind of quickly just devolved into this, this, you know, highly politicized debate around you know, who owns what and, and what, what, what benefits potentially this administration and Trump's efforts for reelection. That's interesting. You mentioned Facebook earlier. Um, are there risks going forward, or do you see any risk going forward that China could take the same approach to U.S.-based companies that we are taking with TikTok? Yeah, so so Facebook and Google um, are barred really from operating in China, um, but there are some big U.S. companies that do operate in China and have important business there, and they include Apple and Microsoft. Um, and so this kind of reciprocity, um, this this digital platform. You know, rivalry that's that's really emerging could extend um, you know, to U.S. companies that are operating in China, um, and it could also this administration could also extend its attention to other Chinese companies that have U.S. Uh, investment interests. Uh, there's the TikTok ban, or at least the potential TikTok ban, or potential TikTok sale, or whatever happens to TikTok. But then there's also attention on WeChat, which is owned by a Chinese company, a parent company called Tencent. And Tencent is interesting because um, it is heavily invested in the billions of dollars in a lot of other U.S. tech businesses, um, very heavily in the gaming is industry, um, but even extending to companies like Uber um, you know, that are publicly traded U.S. firms. And this is probably a question for both of you guys. Um, and maybe you can start, Alex, um, just on the privacy portion of it. Do you think all this attention uh, spurs any congressional activity on uh, privacy legislation. So privacy is, is an interesting debate because in the U.S. we have no federal data privacy framework. There are no federal guidelines that are comprehensive. Um, you know, everything addresses maybe something that's sector specific, like healthcare, or um, that affects you know ch that that governs children's uh, data, um, you know, it, it defining as uh, those um, minors under 13 years and younger. So, um, you know, this is this emerged as a as a as a acute issue that had the attention of lawmakers after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, that grew out of the 2016 election, uh, and that debate continues. And while there's a lot of overlap in terms of the policy goals of Republican and Democratic lawmakers alike, um, there remain some key sticking points, and we've seen those efforts remain largely stalled in Congress. Um, there's hope that they'll be uh, they'll be they'll be able to make more progress in the next Congress, um, but part of me wonders whether it won't take another 
um, scandal on the you know, scale of a, a Cambridge Analytica um, to really uh, light a fire and, and create the, the kind of urgency to break through some of those, those ticking points. And what about for you, Henrietta? I know there's been some legislation, bipartisan legislation, and some sanctions that have been passed. Um, do any of these have any teeth, or are they more bark than bite? And uh, are there any specific bills that you think are really important for investors to kind of focus on? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Whereas the administration tries to make flashy headlines and then temper themselves, the congressional action is designed to make really flashy, aggressive headlines and then also see those carried out, except for that they always give a you know, a cautious clause to the president. So for instance, they have passed legislation that will allow the president not only to impose sanctions on any um, Cong- uh, Communist Party officials in China, if they are, for instance, engaging in activities associated with the Hong Kong Autonomy Act or messing with any of that, or if they are um, incorporated into the uh, concentration camps in the Uyghur community or facilitate that in any way. Congress likes to pass those bills all the time. And so we have a whole host of sanctions on them. And the president has imposed those sanctions because um, it's obviously helpful to his broader narrative that China is a dramatic and substantial competitor for the United States, which at this point, more than 60% of Americans agree with. It's a very easy boogeyman for the president to ride going into the election. Um, you see Joe Biden doing that as well. Democrats and Republicans are basically fighting with each other to see who can hate China more and be more aggressive. What happens though, is that the Senate and the House will pass legislation that says, all right, well, not only can you put sanctions on senior Chinese officials that are involved in the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, but I also want you to impose secondary sanctions on any financial institution that has any um, relationship with those officials. And if this is directly being funneled through any of those financial institutions, that's where you start to hit the private sector. You start to get into um, the business community and things start to escalate rapidly. There is definitely a scale from one to 10 on how dramatic in terms of escalation uh, imposing sanctions on an individual is versus a secondary sanction on a financial institution that could disrupt markets, that could disrupt global trade um, and the financial community in general. So that's something that Congress has passed and the president has the authority to do if he wants to, but has obviously never done. Mostly because it impacts how China will retaliate and one of the things that this president cannot have happen is for China to pull out of the phase one trade deal, as we talked about before. Let's think about what we discussed. We talked about how the phase one deal was mostly focused on agriculture trade. That's important going into an election because the president is a Republican and the vast majority of states that have Senate Republicans for uh, up for election this cycle that are at risk or in states that the president must win for the Electoral College. I'm thinking Iowa, Georgia, North Carolina, um, South Carolina, Texas, Kentucky, Montana. Those states have major impacts on whether or not this president gets reelected versus his challenger, Joe Biden. And more importantly for the senators, it has a dramatic impact on whether they get reelected, as Joni Ernst could tell you about right now, or Susan Collins in Maine. The last several bills Congress has passed almost always have some sort of inclusion for the lobster industry in Maine because Susan Collins is at a deficit after being a 20 plus year veteran of the United States Senate. She doesn't have um, the approval rating to win re-election. And so they are heavily focused on this trade argument to see what they can make happen. So everything that the president 
actually effectuates on trade policy, whether it's sanctions of individuals or financial institutions, is hinging on the fact that on November 3rd, all these Senate Republicans and himself are on the ticket, and they can't afford to blow up the phase one trade deal that is so heavily exposed to agriculture. Um, And so that really puts a limit on the extent to which the president is willing to implement the legislation that the senators give him the authority to implement. Yeah, we saw some of that uh, increased farm aid, I think, in the recent um, House passed CR bill as well. And so do you think the farmers are going to stick with the uh, with Trump on this uh, this election? It depends on the state. Um, when you see that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are tied in states like Georgia and Iowa, there's only one reason for that. And that is because a number of farmers have decided that the risk that they've had to endure, uh, really being on the front lines of the trade war for the last three years, are not risks that they're willing to um, swallow into 2021 and the next four years thereafter. We've seen record bankruptcies at farms nationwide, not even just because of the pandemic, but before that, because of the very disastrous tariffs that we put on China, and then China retaliated by just suspending pork purchases, suspending soy purchases. Farmers are so... Uh, uniquely and minutely attuned to every data set and every point in the trade universe, that even when Congress proposes putting out potential aid to the fisheries like they did in the last Republican stimulus bill, there's $500 million in there specifically for fisheries, and that was tethered to Susan Collins and the lobster and fishing industry in Maine. That is important because the farmers are so keyed in as substantial beneficiaries of the United States uh, federal government in terms of agriculture subsidization. We've seen, I want to say like four, maybe even five now trade mitigation assistance programs in the 12, 13, 14 billion dollar range passed since the trade wars started. And I think those farmers, as the data and the polling is telling you, are saying, man, I don't know if I could take on this much risk. The president does not appear interested in backing away from China. I see this getting worse before it gets better. The phase one deal is already being undersubscribed by China. And um, I'm not sure I'm willing to bet the farm on this, literally. Thanks. So there's a question for for both of you guys. Looking forward to the, or looking past the election, so in 2021, if Trump is reelected, do you guys think he continues in the same direction? Is there a change of course? Is he more aggressive? And then also, if Biden is in office, sort of what what route does he take, and is he able to um, sort of mend any of these strained relations? I'll, I'll answer that for tech, Kenny, and, and I, it's, it's an important question because I think what we've seen from this administration is what we'll get in, if, if this administration uh, gets a second term. Um, so in terms of you know, U.S.-China policy as it relates to these tech companies like this TikTok fiasco, uh, you know, more of the same in terms of you know, reactionary and haphazard um, and, 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 and chaotic, I think, would, will still be the order of the day. Um, under a potential Biden administration, I think there you have a situation where um, that th- that administration could grapple with some of these bigger questions about how to address future global technology that's less American, um, and and that would include establishing objective and transparent criteria for non-U.S. companies, um, setting principles and standards for digital governance, and and to your point, I think that's also where you go about trying to restore alliances um, with like-minded countries or countries that share some of those principles. So we're talking about 
you know, blocks of countries that you know care about privacy, that care about freedom of expression, um, that care about civil liberties. Um, and that's where you could see a refresh or, or you know, a refresh of, of those kinds of multilateral efforts. Uh, for my part, I think that the outcome of the election is going to have a very different impact on trade, depending on who is elected. Whereas President Trump now has this phase one trade deal to start with and work with from here. And theoretically, that should segue into phase two, which would include intellectual property theft negotiations, uh, forced tech transfer negotiations, and real tangible reforms on those big ticket items that USTR, Lighthizer, and President Trump really want to see in the long term. Um, my expectation is that the tensions between the two sides that are now escalated to the point where they can barely get on the phone with each other are probably not going to win the day. I anticipate every tariff that's in place today will remain in effect. You'll probably ultimately see list 4B tariffs go into effect as things continue to escalate and more important than any of the tariffs, because at least with tariffs, you can pass the cost on to the consumers and continue trade. What we're seeing the Trump administration focus on and the Senate uh, CFIUS and Treasury CFIUS programs is um, the export control restrictions, where you effectively put up an iron curtain or a silicon curtain, as some might say, between the two countries and just halt trade in everything from IT to 3D printers, robotics, uh, cloud computing, and the like. Under a Biden administration, I think you see a sort of a deep breath, uh, potential for a reset. That does not mean you take any tariffs off. That won't happen for at least three to six months, but you could see a um, material resetting of the relationship that, such that you can even get in a room again and really engage in a dialogue between the nations and maybe not escalate quite as rapidly as we would anticipate under a Trump administration. Um, more important than any of that though, especially for the long term, is that I think the Biden administration would prioritize multilateral relationships with the rest of the globe, the EU and Japan specifically, team up with those nations, team up with the Five Eyes nations, Canada, Australia, uh, London, UK, etc., and try to create and embolden the World Trade Organization, uh, which is a stark contrast to the Trump administration that is currently thinking about pulling out of the WTO. So material differences between the two. Tariffs will remain in effect no matter what, though. All right. Fantastic. All right. Let's move to the breakdown. Now it's time for a breakdown. Okay. Some of these you have answered kind of, but we're going to ask him again. Odds of U.S. or China pulling out of the phase one deal? Before the election, 5% or less. Definitely less than that for the U.S. China, maybe 5 5 to 10%. After the election, Odd. distinctly possible. Okay. Odds of new and or higher tariffs being put on? Before the election, zero. After the election, 60% at least. Okay. Do you think we will ever see China's unreliable entity list and will they ever act on it? Yes. I think we're getting closer. As you know, um, over the weekend, they put out their vague framework for what is going to be constituting an unreliable entity. Um, that is, in my view, essentially any company that is headquartered in the United States that operates in China and has a Chinese competitor. So a lot of talk focuses on FedEx, um, Nike, The Gap, et cetera. I think Geely Automotive is a huge focus because, or should be a huge focus because Ford and GM sell most of their cars in China and China has a perfectly acceptable alternative that's domestic and domestically produced. So I think the 
concerns should be very much at the forefront of any business decisions for existing manufacturers and operators in China, as well as anybody considering going over there now. All right. In five years, will the U.S.-China relationship be better or worse than it is now? Man, that depends on the election um, to a substantial extent. I imagine it's going to get worse and then hopefully it'll get better. And I think there'll be less mutual reliance between the countries five years from now, regardless of the election outcome. Well said. All right. Last one. Alex, this is for you. And I promised my uh, my kids I would ask this. Are they going to have to remove their TikTok app? Uh, Kenny, I'd say it's better than a coin flip that they will. Uh, so you might want to get them uh, set up with Triller or Dub Smash or Byte before before then. They're going to be disappointed. <laughs> so 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 much time this summer spent on dance moves, and they need their venue to uh, to to show it. All right, guys, thank you so much for all your time and thoughts on today's topic. By the sounds of it, we're going to be back discussing this uh, same topic again soon. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Please find more information about Veda Partners on our website, www.veda-partners.com, and please give us a follow on LinkedIn. Have a great day.